This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. This edition of The Feed is brought to you by Peak Performance. If you are a startup, a small business, or even a mid-sized enterprise needing professional HR support, your solution awaits with Peak Performance HR. Not every organization requires a full-time HR specialist, and Peak Performance HR offers fractional, flexible, and cost-effective outsourced HR services tailored to fit your unique needs. Visit peakperformancehr.ca. Coming up on the feed, keeping your child's holiday gift expectations in check, black girl hockey club equipment scholarships, and employers struggling to keep top talent. But we begin at the grocery store. The just-released Food Price Report 2024 predicts that food products will see an average inflation rate increase between 2.5 and 4.5 percent next year. That's down from the average 5 to 7 percent we faced in 2023. At first blush, it sounds like good news, but the bottom line is you're still going to be paying more for what you eat, something many Canadians find hard to stomach. We welcome to the feed lead author of the Food Price Report 2024 and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, Dr. Sylvain Charbois. Welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Well, thank you. So, Sylvain, where are the encouraging words in this report? What is the good news? Well, if you're expecting prices to drop, uh, it's not so good news because, well, it's not going to happen. A lot of people are thinking, well... Uh, we're going to go back to 2019. That's not the case. That's not how inflation works. That's not how our economy works. Uh, we are we always want inflation. The problem that we've had in recent years is that inflation has been very, very high. Food inflation has been above 5% steady. And uh, actually, this year in 2023, it reached over 10% at some point. And uh, But for 2024, we are expecting the food inflation rate to reach uh, the sweet spot, uh, mm-hmm. which is 1.5 to 2.5%. And so that's the ideal scenario you want. So we're still not out of the woods, but we're seeing the end of the woods, if you will, uh, for 24, 2024, which is why I think it's good news. So in other words, uh, there will still be an increase in food prices, just not as dramatic as we've seen in the past couple of years. Exactly. And so, uh, of course, you want to continue to uh, adopt the practices you adopted uh, this year. And a lot of people uh, basically decided to uh, spend less or uh, they decide to approach grocery shopping very differently. I, I know I've spoken to a lot of people who have abandoned uh, their grocery store and they've decided to go somewhere else or to many different places. And uh, you want to continue to do that at least for a while uh, because uh, prices will continue to rise. However, we are expecting a bit of a turn in the middle of the year and things actually may tighten up with margins Walmart in the U.S. is talking about deflation. Uh, we're seeing the same thing. It actually may happen. We may actually see some pockets of, of price wars here and there, especially at the center of the store in 2024. And what about loyalty? You know, you think about grocers, and they have always looked at and appreciated loyalty, but that's not happening now. What can grocers do other than, of course, reduce prices? What can they do to retain their shoppers? Well, so we're all nomads now. We're always looking for new deals, and we're much less loyal. And I think that's the battleground for 2024. I actually think that grocers will just try to uh, incentivize our visits uh, by getting us to buy loss leaders, products that are on sale, promotions, 
more generous uh, loyalty programs as well. We are expecting several different things. And so that's why I think that 2024 should be looked upon as a, as a promising year compared to 2023. 2023 was really just an awful year yeah. altogether for most grocery shoppers. You know, Sylvain, grocers keep saying that it's not their fault that grocery prices are so high and, and still poised to rise in 2024, albeit in a more muted way. In fact, the words uh, code of conduct have been bandied about at uh, least with two of the major grocers, Loblaw and also Walmart. There seems to be some reluctance on the part of some to uh, to be a part of this code of conduct. Yeah, no, and, and that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem because the code of conduct cannot work if everyone, not everyone, adheres to it. Especially Walmart and Loblaws, and the reason why they're not buying it is just they have a lot to lose, and uh, and they do control uh, rules right now. And so without that, uh, you can't really have a functioning code of conduct. Now, Galen Weston himself is arguing that the code of conduct would actually push prices higher. I, I don't agree at all with him. In fact, it would stabilize uh, food, uh, food prices. It would actually allow the supply chain to virtually coordinate and allow stakeholders to talk to each other to manage some of these black swan events, uh, which leads to uh, fewer episodes of fluctuations. Uh, as we're seeing in the, in the UK and Ireland and Australia, where there is a code, and so you can see that over the last 10 years, prices have not uh, fluctuated as much over there compared to here in Canada. Based on the study, the report, and your research, which foods are going to increase in 2024 and which ones might see the lowest rise next year? Yeah, so what we're expecting in 2024, uh, we actually see three categories specifically. Uh, meat products, bakery, and vegetables. And so those are uh, likely going to be driving forces behind food inflation, unfortunately. So if you're a meat lover, probably chicken will be your best bet because beef and pork will increase in price. Uh, vegetables, we're expecting the dollar to decrease, actually, in value. And uh, bakery is actually going to be uh, in a catch-up mode. Uh, we are expecting bakery to, to increase uh, just like it did this year, in fact. What about dairy and fruit? Yeah, that, actually, those are good news. I mean, fruit was, fruits were more expensive this year, uh, but we're not expecting the same thing next year in 2024. Dairy is, uh, I think we're going we're gonna to get a break at the um, dairy section, which is good news. So if you're a cheese lover, you like yogurt, milk drinker, I, I think this report is actually good news for you. And you see, there's the good news I was looking for, Sylvan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there is some good news, after all. So feeding a family of four, and I found I, this to be quite shocking, I guess, just because of the price. Right now, expected in 24, 2024 to cost $16,297.20, up more than $700 from 2023. That's a lot of money to feed a family of four. That is so much money. It is a lot of money. Uh, but here's the thing. If you actually pay attention to loyalty programs, to rebates, to lost leaders, you don't have to spend more money. Uh, you just have to be careful out there. Uh, there are going to be more opportunities to save than this year for sure. And so that's certainly something that people need to keep in mind all the way through the year. Food bank visits are rising at an alarming rate right across Canada. Is this because of the cost of food being too expensive here in this country? 
Yeah, so I am I am on the board of uh, Second Harvest, the largest uh, food bank in, in Canada. We're seeing more traffic for sure, and so we need to think about the people who actually need the support. But that's not going to change. I think it's going to be there for a while as interest rates remain quite high. So what is the end game? What is the end purpose of this particular report? What is it that you want Canadians to know? What is it that you want grocers to know? Well, I, I think what's important here is that we need to uh, make sure that Canadians are well served, but there is a bit of a, a trust crisis right now. Uh, a lot of people don't trust grocers. They need to keep that in mind, and, and that's why the the attitude of Loblaws and Walmart towards the code of conduct is just not helping. And keep in mind, in 2023, Metro decided to sue Loblaws, which makes things worse. So there's a lot of finger pointing right now, which is absolutely useless because Canadians don't care whose fault it is. They just want affordable, safe food. Bottom line, will we ever see pre-pandemic levels when it comes to the cost of food? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's a good no, answer. <laughs> I mean, costs have gone up. Salaries have gone up. I mean, have, you, have your salary gone down uh, uh, recently? No, most salaries have gone up. And so that's why we need to be realistic here. What I think, and, and people, we can't continue to vilify inflation. There is a reason why we have inflation is to grow the economy. If we don't have any inflation, actually things can get worse. So that's why it's important to, to make sure that we keep food inflation at very, very low, which is not the case right now, but we're actually getting there. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the lead author of the 2024 Food Price Report, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Meanwhile, food banks across York Region and right across this nation are witnessing more clients than ever. Shaliza Back is now with that story. It is indeed the holiday season, and we like to say tis the season, but it is also important to remember those who are less fortunate this holiday season. And with the prices of food increasing, inflation is higher than ever. A lot of people can't afford to put basic meals on the table, never mind a huge holiday dinner. Joining me now to talk about this is the CEO of the Food Bank of York Region, Alex Bellotta. How are you? I'm excellent, Shaliza. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. And we've been talking about this all year long, really, that the need for the food banks has increased quite greatly over the last year or so. Yeah. Yes, we have. We're seeing a significant increase in unique individuals at all of our agencies that we serve. We're seeing a significant increase in new people, which is the strain on all the food access programs throughout York Region. And what we're seeing is that employment income is not keeping up with inflation. So it's putting a lot of pressure on people who are already on low income or even moderate income. And we're seeing a huge increase in household debt. So things don't look good in the coming months. They don't. I mean, we're hoping for a little bit of a break at the grocery stores and things like that, but I feel like we're just going to have to keep our fingers crossed for that. And while the food costs and inflation are making things so pricey and the prices of things so high, how is the food bank itself holding up? Well, it's challenging because we just, we can't keep up with the demand. And, you know, we've had some challenges at our food bank. We've had uh, one quick exit our logistics and warehouse manager exited and we had to hire somebody else. A driver quit. And during the holidays, it's making things even harder. And because don't like cash donations for us is slightly up, 
but we've been working hard with fundraisers to make that happen, but it's still not going to keep up with the demand. Uh, earlier this year, to keep, what, keep up with the demand, we started working seven days a week. And from what I understand, we're the only food bank in Ontario that operates seven days. Wow. So do you feel like you have an increase of clients then because you're so much more available to people? We tried, We made ourselves available to the retail stores. See, most of our food comes from, it's food rescue from retail stores. And we realize that they're open seven days a week. And so, you know what? Hunger doesn't take a break. And as long as these retail stores are open, we should be available, for, uh, available to serve them with their food donations. So, no, I don't think there's a correlation that there's a lot more food available. I think it has more to do with inflation itself and that employment income is not keeping up. And that's an interesting point that you made about the retail stores and stuff, because I've noticed, you know, a lot of of the big chain grocery stores, especially in York Region, have partnered with a number of food banks across the region to, as they say, reduce food waste and help to feed people who need it the most. Do you think that these programs are actually helpful? Absolutely. Most of our work is picking up from the retail stores. So uh, we pick up from 14 Walmart stores in York Region. We pick up from five Costco stores and all the food basics and metro stores. Uh, we pick up from the Sobeys Distribution Center, the Longos Distribution Center. So we've chosen that route because it stays away from the traditional food drives where the, the community food pantries get their food. So we're able to supplement their food drives with the retail store items. Okay, so that kind of increases the quality of food a little bit more as well. Absolutely. Our focus is fresh and frozen product. All our trucks are refrigerated and we keep the cold chain intact from the time it's donated. And when we donate it to our network, that cold chain is kept intact. Amazing. So I I actually do think that that is very helpful and it's a great way for the stores to contribute as well. And not only the stores, but the communities still do need to help and, and contribute. And what ways can we help support local food banks? Well, you bring up an excellent point. You know what? I always say that this is a community project, not a project of our charity. If the community doesn't chip in, we're really dead in the water. There won't be a program. So there needs to be community engagement from all areas of the communities, from the individual all the way up to the governments. So individuals, they can give three different ways. They can give cash, they can give their time, or they can give food. Corporations can send teams of people for a corporate volunteer day. We, we have challenges here for them. So, it, you know, it's a corporate building day for them. Corporations can also give cash and they can also give food. So as long as the community, the entire community engages at all, not just the regional hub. So we're the regional hub that provides food for other programs, but from the community meal programs to the community food pantries to the regional food bank, If everybody engages in all the different areas, we will do a whole lot better. Great ways to help. And I think some really some words that we really need to hear this holiday season. And if our listeners want to connect with Food Bank of York Region and make a donation, do they come in in person or can that be done online or both? Yeah, they can come in on person if they want, or they can do it from the comfort of their own home or their or their smartphone. They can go to www.fbyr.ca slash donate. And you know what? Don't forget your community food pantry because we wouldn't be able to do our work without the community food pantries. They need your support as well. So maybe you can split it this Christmas season. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Alex Bellotta, CEO of the Food Bank of York Region. Thank you so much for joining us and have a lovely holiday season. Thank you very much. You too. Take care. Small businesses are the backbone of the economy, but labor shortages continue to impact revenue. According to the provincial government, hiring women may be a solution. Here's Glenn Perkins. To ensure that women entering the workforce are properly trained, the Ontario government is investing $496,000 this year into the Women's Economic Security Program. That's on top of the more than $5 million the program has already received. Charmaine Williams, Associate Minister of Women's Social and Economic Opportunity, says the funding will be used for training for low-income women so they can get the skills, knowledge and experience to find a job and increase their financial security. It's a program that's helped over 2,100 women secure employment or start their own business or pursue further training and or education. And, and that's really the goal, to see women economically empowered and supported so that they have the ability to keep themselves safe and also do whatever job, any sector that they want to get into. In this day and age, is this still a problem for women? It has been a difficulty for women to enter or re-enter the workforce, you know, especially in sectors where women underrepresented, traditionally male-dominated jobs like the trades haven't been uh, an encouraging opportunity for women to engage in, but we're really working to change that. We've also been able to really significantly increase or increase the amount of women who are working who have children between the ages of zero to five because childcare. Childcare can be very difficult to attain. It has had become increasingly unaffordable, but through our government, we've been able to secure a significant deal to see more women working. What's being done to help these women find positions? Well, we have been working very closely within the community, and it's helping organizations that have a focus on seeing women economically secure and organizations that are helping women through the programs that I fund, like the Investing in Women's Futures program or the one that we just announced, Call for Applications on the Women's Economic Security program. Um, These organizations in the communities use these funds to train women, to train women in the trades, train women to develop a business, if that's what they choose to do, ways that they can help make sure that they are financially secure. Training is so important, isn't it? Absolutely, 100%. Especially as women are entering back into the workforce and the job that they went to wasn't as fulfilling and they want to do something new, um, do something different. Being able to train in whatever kind of world that they want to get into is so important for them to have that confidence to go and land that job that they want. It's worth noting, isn't it, that an important aspect of this initiative is to help women who are trapped in abusive relationships. Financial uncertainty can be a major reason for not leaving. Mm-hmm. You know, I I used to work in social services for almost 20 years, worked with women who were fleeing violence, and one of the contributing factors that made it difficult for women to leave 
was being able to feel confident that they're going to take care of their families if they leave. So oftentimes women end up staying in abusive relationships because they do not have that economic security, which is why I want to address the root causes and make sure that women have that financial independence, that they can leave abusive relationships or so that they can feel confident that whatever happens in the relationship, that they can take care of themselves and their kids. So that's why it's so important that we as a government, as a community, empower women to enter into sectors that are going to pay well, have bigger paychecks, that are going to make sure that they have the opportunities for upwards mobility in that company. Economic security is vital to the safety of women, and I'm really proud of the investments that we're making to ensure that we are providing women with the tools. The provincial government has certainly been pushing during the last few years to get women into the skilled trades, and this is just one more step towards them doing this? That's right, it is. And we've seen a 30% increase in women starting apprenticeship programs, and that's a great sign. And so for me, it's making sure that these sectors are good sectors that women can thrive in, and then also especially entrepreneurship. So I've been working you know, across government with my colleagues to look at ways that we can make Ontario the best place to live, work, play, do business in, and making sure that women are at the forefront of these decisions. You know, you, you can't ignore 51% of the workforce. So instead of seeing as the problem, women are the solution to the workplace challenges that we see today. Not only for women, but also for employers listening today, What is the one message you would want them to take away from this? Hire a woman. (laughs) We're such great multitaskers. Women have the ability, the strength uh, to do anything that they have the opportunity to do. And, you know, we saw $16 in lost revenue just because of jobs being unfilled last year alone. So we have an opportunity to make sure that women are empowered to go for these jobs and to make sure that we are always looking at filling that gap that might be created when men are retiring or leaving some of these sectors. Women absolutely can be that next hire for you, can be that next leader, can be that next four person to run a shipping yard or whatever it is. Women can do it. We can do it. Charmaine Williams, Associate Minister of Women's Social and Economic Opportunity. Thank you for joining us on The Feed. Thank you so much for having me. While experts suggest the 2024 job market is resilient, keeping top employees and hiring candidates with required skills are among the concerns for managers. Tina Cortez with the details. Derek Wood is Regional Director at the Robert Half Company. Derek, welcome to the feed. Hi, good to be here. Well, you know, I know we've got a a few weeks left still in 2023, but many are already looking ahead to 2024. Do you think the job market will remain resilient into the new year? Yeah, I think what we're seeing and and what's been reflected on our recent survey is that there's certainly some optimism in the job market going into the new year. Uh, with hiring managers, 54% saying they looked at, they're looking to add new permanent positions in the first six months of next year, and even more, 68% looking to hire more contract workers. So I would say uh, it's a time where people are expecting to do a little more hiring in the first half of next year. 
So what are some of the reasons that they're going to expand the hiring? Yeah, the, the number one reason that uh, hiring managers quoted was company growth. And so that's, you know, 61% saying that. But a few other reasons of note, um, mostly related to the, the talent on the team. So the, the next biggest thing would be just maybe lacking the requisite skills with their current employees and then trying to capitalize on top talent that's available in the market from other companies who maybe have been laid off. And then, then I guess a common one is just employee turnover. So those are some of the main reasons why people are looking to hiring. And you talk about top talent. I've heard that it's often difficult to find skilled professionals for some of these areas. What have you heard? Absolutely. Yeah, you've, uh, you've been talking to the same people maybe I have. Um, 89% of organizations report difficulty in finding skilled professionals. So yes, absolutely a challenge. And what about keeping them around? Yeah, that keeping retention is definitely on the minds of hiring managers. Um, that is probably, well, that is the number one concern of employers is with 90% of managers citing concerns with retaining their top talent. And that is followed right uh, behind that with worrying about keeping them motivated and engaged. So it's definitely top of mind for employers. And any ideas on how to do that, how to keep employees and your team engaged and motivated? Yeah, I think uh, all employers would love a handbook on that. Um, I think there's a number of different ways. I think one of the things of, of that's very relevant in today's market is keeping a note about flexibility. That is something that employees have expressed you know, a, a big interest in. And I would say flexibility has become a bit of a new currency for folks. Um, so I think companies need to be a little creative in how they can be flexible um, in order to entice top talent to want to enjoy in their organizations. Expand a little bit on that. What do you mean by flexible? Yeah, I think, I think so people are looking to time has become a maybe more valuable uh, for folks. And so it's not just necessarily about starting salary. I think it, so it could be flexibility in work model or work structure uh, whether that's hybrid or remote options, uh, but also even just on benefits in terms of being creative about the benefits that they're offering uh, to attract and retain workers. Uh, because sometimes it's been tough. The market has gone up in starting salaries, so if you're able to offer some flexibility in work structure, some creative benefits of value to folks, I think those are some things that can help people be a little, or employers be a little more competitive when trying to attract and retain talent. So we've talked about the employers, we've talked about the hiring managers. What about from the employee perspective? Do you have any tips on finding the right new job in the new year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's always important, a few things, regardless of market, is is that you're you're tapping into your network, um, make sure of your your information, your resumes are updated um, and available. And certainly, if you're needing some some additional resources in your search, um, you know, talent uh, firms like Robert Half can certainly help folks um, navigate the job market. Uh, but yeah, always good to just be up to date with your resume and tapped into your network. What about managing salary expectations, both from the employee or prospective employee side and the employer side? Yeah, I think with with expectations on salaries, it is something that employers are worried about being able to meet candidate salary expectations. And um, 
so that is challenging. That's where it does come back to being flexible with your um, your work structure and your benefits to attract. Um, with with people with in demand skill sets, yeah, of course they do have some leverage in today's job market. Um, so I think it's it's weighing out the opportunities. But I guess a note of caution that, that you know that they're getting everything beyond just the compensation that is going to be uh, you know a good match for them going forward. If you were to share one piece of advice for employees and employers heading into 2024, what would that be? It's going to be a better year. <laughs> 2023 has been a challenging year across the board, and I think the optimism in the survey um, suggests to people that there's going to be more hiring, which which means more opportunities for employees or job seekers. So, um, you know, I think this survey supports a little optimism going into into the new year in the first half. Um, so I, I think the tip then would be to to make sure to exploit those opportunities. And so employers to, uh, to identify that talent quickly, to move quickly, and uh, for employees to be discerning about the opportunities that they're considering for their next career move. Great advice. If our listeners want more information about this survey or about Robert Half, where can they find it? RobertHalf.com. Terrific. Thanks so much for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much. After the break, helping children learn the habits of gratitude during the holidays and beyond. That story is next on the feed. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. There are so many aspects of the holiday season that promise to deliver joy and happiness. Parties, gift giving, a much needed break from work, and hopefully quality time with family and friends. But what about our children? They are bombarded by ads and shows on TV and other platforms, encouraging them to make gift wish lists. I want this toy, that game, this coat, those shoes, a bike, skis, skates, electronics, tickets to Taylor Swift, gift cards, and on and on. Dr. Deanne Sims is a clinical health psychologist, the founder and CEO of ThriveSpace, and a mother of a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. She joins us now on the feed. Wow, you have a busy life, Deanne. Thanks for taking the time. (laughs) Of course. Happy to be here, Anne. So how do we help our kids keep it all in perspective? Well, it's a great question and one that I struggle with, certainly over the holiday season with my own kids. Um, I, I really believe that being open, being transparent, and modeling the way that we live life, balancing giving and getting, is important for kids of any age. And I know that in the holiday season, there is quite a bit of stress on adults in general with some of the financial strain that we're under, but with parents in particular, meeting the expectations of our kiddos can be an extra layer to some of the stress that we might be feeling right now. Deanne, do we begin by discussing the meaning of Christmas, even if you're not religious? Sure. I think that having conversations about the ways that we can expect to receive from friends, families, members of our community is part of a conversation. The other part that we might at times overlook is the ways that we give back with our presence, our physical presence, with 
our giving of time, our giving of skills, our giving of care and conversations to make sure that we understand that the holiday season is a composite of the ways that we interact with others and how we continue to provide meaning in our relationships with those around us. So it's one thing to discuss this with your family, but it might be another to actually show them. Would it be a consideration to perhaps visit a homeless shelter or a food bank with your child so that they can see that there are many, many sides to life in 2023? Yes, absolutely. I think that showing our kids that we are walking the walk is very important for their learning. Kids learn not only through what we say to them, but through observing how we live life. So from a developmental psychology perspective, kids can learn about these kinds of issues from as early as age three to six. They develop a sense of purpose. They develop an understanding of what it means to give and to volunteer and to participate in the community around us. So certainly having conversations about how we give back to our communities, how we understand the needs of other people around us, and how we try to fill some of those needs, be it through donating, be it through engaging with charities, be it through volunteering at different spaces and places so that we're able to feel connected to our community and make sure that everyone lives as, as healthfully as possible through the holiday season. These are, these are things that kids can grasp, actually, from, from quite an early age. And I think there's lots of interesting and unique ways that families can walk the walk in a meaningful way in their communities and in their families through the holiday season. So as a mom, but also as a clinical psychologist, I'm going to ask you this uh, with, a, with an answer that I know is going to help all of us listening. How do you graciously, respectfully, and lovingly pull your child's focus away from the gifts that they want, that all of the things that they're bombarded by when it comes to what they see on all sorts of social platforms and television as well. How do you pull them away, their focus away from that and and move it somewhere else for the holiday season? Well, I think for my kids, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse that I'm a psychologist. (laughs) we (laughs) We have lots of conversations about lots of things. And I am happy to receive their lists of, you know, holiday lists of things that they would like. And we have conversations about how some of those things are probably within reach for friends and family and other gift givers in their life. And that because they have made a list does not mean that they can expect that the entirety of their list will be sitting under the tree on Christmas morning. Um, I also am very transparent that that is part of the holiday celebration that we engage in. And I let them know from a brain science perspective Mm -hmm. that giving and acts of kindness are directly linked to our health and our well-being. So I let them know that, yes, it feels good in the moment when we get a gift, and it also feels really good in the moment when we give a gift of ourselves. It activates different parts of our brains that make us feel warm and fuzzy and connected to the people around us. 
So I really make sure that we are finding balance across those two areas. And I let them know explicitly that we work hard in one area and we also pay attention to the other area because that's how we show up in our relationships and that's how we maintain the wellness of not only of ourselves but also of the people around us. Boy, you sound like a clinical psychologist, that's for sure. So how do we say, <laughs> how do we say it in mom language? <laughs> um, I think that in mom language we can say, I really love all of the things that you have found and you've put on this list. It's great to know that you'll get some of these things. And how can we also make sure that we're giving back to other people around us? As a family, we value making sure that people feel safe and warm and loved. How can we make sure that we are giving some of those things to the people that matter in our neighborhood and in our community around us? Let's make a list of some of the things that we are going to give to others over the holiday season. And we'll know that we also won't be able to give all of the things on our list that might not be realistic. But if we can check off even a few of those things, we know that it'll make us feel good and it'll make other people around us feel good too. Oh, you had me at hello. (laughs) (laughs) So Deanne, let me ask you this. The comparison issue, and this would be outside the family, although there is sibling rivalry, of course, and that sometimes can be healthy, but outside the family, so the friends of the child, of your child or or someone's child, they're saying, well, I'm going to be getting this, this, and this, or I got this, this, and this. And and it, it it's a difficult thing to have to explain to your child why they got what they did and and how they should feel it is remarkably wonderful. Right. I think you can talk about comparisons. I think you can say, you know, um, your list had this on it and Sammy's list had that on it. And like we know, what you got is different than what Sammy got and it's different than what Bobby got. And that's okay. How do you feel about the things that you did get? How do you feel about the things that you did give? And I think acknowledging that there are differences that there are emotions behind those differences, but helping kids feel a sense of empowerment and a sense of control in terms of what they can do and shifting their perspective in terms of taking control of the controllable. Hmm. You didn't get everything on your list. Did you give everything on your giving list? Because we know that that's actually a way to feel a bit better if you are feeling down. And just acknowledging that their little lives are going to be different than the lives of their little friends. Sometimes it's disappointing and you can make, there are strengths in disappointment because you can focus on what is within your control, even if you are five. So in a, in a way, it's a teaching moment, helping your child deal with disappointment. Absolutely. And disappointment is a natural facet of life. I think that we are so shaped and I'm guilty of this also, especially coming out of the pandemic. I did not want my children to experience the the depths of sadness and disappointment and frustration um, that the pandemic, I think, launched us all into. And so I tried my hardest with those holidays to make them hallmark perfect and to make sure everyone was having a great time and to remove any chance of disappointment from their little lives. But unfortunately, that's not in keeping with reality. And so I need to remind myself that there will likely be disappointment. There will likely be disappointment over the Christmas season. 
and holiday season, not only for them, but for myself also as a human being. And I think it's okay to talk about that, to model that, and to acknowledge we're all going to feel a lot of emotions over the holiday season. And that's okay. But we can also focus on controlling the controllable and finding ways to maintain our wellness, even in the face of disappointment. Would it make sense to have your child participate in the Give the Gift of Christmas program? I mean, there are lots out there. Build a Toy Mountain, uh, donate, unwrap toy uh, to uh, an organization. It's so important that they see that there might be children in need who could certainly appreciate what they're doing, what they're giving. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there are so many ways to give and there are so many ways to be involved. And the more we bring kids along in that journey, the more they understand and the more we build socially responsible, resilient kiddos. So yes, I think finding those opportunities to connect with other kids, to connect with other people, to choose the ways and the things that they will donate or volunteer around can be really impactful. I know with my kiddos um, around this time of year, we do participate in some of those initiatives where we'll talk about things that are on their wish list and other things that we can select for other same-aged kids or similarly interested kids that they can bring and donate and and see the meaningful impact their actions can have on others. We are a little over a week away from December 25th. Is it too late for parents to step in and try to, you know, reorganize the way their child is thinking about the holiday season? I, I believe that it is never too late. As parents, we try our hardest. As parents, we have missteps. And our little people continue to watch us and continue to evolve with us. And I think dialogues are dynamic and ever-evolving. I know my kids are five and eight, and we are having conversations now that are the beginning of threads that will continue on throughout their lives. So I don't believe that it's ever too late. I expect I'll be having similar conversations the morning of the 25th, the morning (laughs) of the 26th, and into next year, and that's okay because... Uh, You know, moments like these are learning opportunities and, you know, talking about what really matters, talking about um, media and social media and pressures toward materialism. um, These are things that are evolving conversations, but they, they allow us to connect with our kids and make sure that we are living our lives in a way that is aligned with our values. And that's, that's an ongoing evolution, to be sure. <laughs> this has been such a helpful conversation. Thank you, Dr. Deanne Sims, clinical health psychologist, the founder and CEO of Thrive Space, and a great mom. <laughs> Thanks, Deanne. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Anne. Coming up, Black Girl Hockey Club and the Gifts of Equipment. That story is after the break. Here on the feed, please stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Black Girl Hockey Club, in partnership with Bauer, is awarding thousands of dollars for equipment. Jim Lang with the details. 
Once again, the amazing crew of the Black Girls Hockey Club have done something special, announcing scholarships for these amazing women across North America, along with our friends at Bauer Hockey. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by uh, one of the important pieces of the Black Girl Hockey Club, Taylor Green. Taylor, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. How are you, Jim? Uh, very, very good. Before we get to some of the recipients of the scholarships, uh, we should talk about Bauer and Bauer Hockey stepping up in a huge way, providing $100,000 of equipment and a grant to help these people play hockey across North America. It's a great partnership between what the Black Girl Hockey Club is doing and Bauer. Yes, absolutely. A big shout-out to Bauer Hockey, and especially their Vice President of Marketing, Mary Kay Messier, for her commitment to gender equity in hockey. Um, And a big shout-out to one of our previous scholarship winners, Dayton O'Donoghue, who really was a big part of this partnership being brought to fruition. Um, She was a part of one of their campaigns called The Barn, and as per her request, she wanted Black Girl Hockey Club to join forces with Bauer, um, which started our first partnership and donation. So it's great to see how far this partnership has come. And I think that's the great thing about what your organization does is empowering these women to pay it forward. So uh, Dayton's not going to be the first one to do something like this down the road. Absolutely. We're really proud of our legacy scholars, as we call them. So girls who have gone on to win multiple scholarships and who honestly have aged out of our scholarship program and are now doing amazing things in college hockey, like Dayton, who's playing at Dartmouth. So just being a small part of their success story along with their families and their drive to be better on and off the ice is a very proud part of being a part of Black Girl Hockey Club. Much as the small acorn will grow into the mighty oak, Black Girl Hockey Club started as an idea, as a a theory, and has grown to something quite big. Uh, Maybe explain to the listeners some of the support you're receiving around the hockey world right now, because I know I see some of it. I'm like, wow, it's, it's incredible how far you guys have come. Yeah, thanks for saying that. We're always super proud when we see our scholarship winners or some of our mentors and mentees from our leadership development program who are uh, at hockey games or who are uh, getting their own interview segments or getting their own spotlight um, for their own success. And we're really proud to join forces and be a part of that journey. And I think that's really the spirit of BGHC is that we can't do this alone, so we really believe in the power of the collective unit. So we're always looking um, across North America and really around the world to see where we can best put forth our efforts. So I'm really proud of the success that we've had throughout 2023, uh, especially seeing some of our girls as part of the Stanley Cup final crew. Um, And I'm really excited for what's to come in 2024. Uh, We'll be at the Winter Classic uh, as the Kraken take on the Golden Knights. So it'll be great to see uh, some of our scholarship winners maybe take part in some of the festivities with that as well. Speaking with Taylor Green from the Black Girl Hockey Club, and they are announced their 25 recipients for the fall 2023 scholarship program uh, across North America. Maybe just highlight some of the recipients and what made them special, because I know it isn't easy to pick the 25. No, it's not. It's always tough, and especially with such a large number of such deserving women. Um, Me being biased, uh, having Hayden Mason from my hometown of Florida 
um, and just seeing uh, the efforts that she's doing um, to not be the only one that looks like her on the ice, but also recognizing uh, that hockey's not the biggest thing in Florida, but at the same time being inspired by the Tampa Bay Lightning and their success made her want to excel on the ice as well. Um, so I'm really proud of her from one Floridian to another. Also, Sia Everett um, from the GTA. Um, she's won more than one scholarship, so very proud of her. And uh, it was really great uh, just to read her essay and see how much the community of BGHC has meant to her and has wanted to help uh, push forth her efforts um, as she continues with her hockey career. And Taylor, you, you just alluded to it, uh, that you're proud that a Floridian is getting it. The Panthers went all the way to the cup final last year. Tampa Bay's had so much success. Austin Matthews of the Leafs is from the Phoenix Valley of the Sun area. We know there's great hockey coming out of Southern California. The the quote-unquote state of hockey in the United States, it has moved around quite a bit, and it's not just localized to the Northeast U.S. anymore. Yeah, we're seeing that reflected in our applications as well. I think we initially saw a lot of scholarship applicants from uh, from Canada and from the North, and so now seeing some uh, from the Southeast, from the Southwest. It, it's interesting how it mirrors the success of some of the teams that we're all watching and loving. So I'm really excited about that, and I'm really excited to see how we can increase our global impact as well so that uh, some of our scholarship applicants can meet Noah Diop, for example, who's currently in France uh, trying to be on the French women's national team, um, who's one of our scholarship winners who has roots in Chicago. So it would be great to, you know, really have a, a global community of BGHC winners from all parts of the globe. Well, Taylor, I mean, considering what the Black Girl Hockey Club has done up until now, there's nothing to stop you. I mean, I don't see how anything wouldn't happen that way for what you guys do. Thanks for saying that, Jim. That's really kind of you. Yeah, we're really feeling the momentum. We're really proud of the partnerships that we've had thus far, including Bauer. And we'll see what 2024 has in store for us. But one thing I can always say is whenever we put out a press release or whenever we have some communications highlighting some of our initiatives, I can always count on you or someone from your team wanting to uh, share some time to really uh, advocate and shine a light on them. So a big part of our success is thanks to you as well. Well, I appreciate that, Taylor. And I'm a big believer that uh, hockey is is really for everyone. And to get the word out that it's for everyone uh, makes the sport better and just makes society better. Uh, Taylor, for you and everything you do, uh, thank you so much. All the best in the holidays. And I can't wait to see what Black Girl Hockey Club has in store for 2024. It sounds very exciting. Yeah, we're very excited. Thank you so much, Jim, and a very happy holidays to you, your team, and all of your great listeners. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.